come up to the book of Ephesians chapter 4. Please find Ephesians chapter 4. Once again, it's wonderful, good to return to our study in the book of Ephesians, one of the greatest books of the Bible, I think. Some great doctrines here that really help us to understand what God wants for us to do. Now, for the past few weeks, we've been studying in a very practical section of the book of Ephesians. Here, Paul is speaking about the gifts of ministry, and he's talking about the people that God has called to do ministry. And the prerequisites for ministry are some of the things that we find, and we've studied already in the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians. And a part, of, part of the prerequisite for ministry, of course, is found in the calling itself. And if a person has a good understanding of doctrine and really a good understanding of things that we read right here in the book of Ephesians, that person is well on his way to being able to fulfill the ministry that God's given him to do. One of the things that I really uh, think is a shame in our churches today is really just the lack of doctrinal preaching. There isn't much doctrine that's preached today, and I'm afraid that there are, in many churches, pastors who really couldn't give a fair exposition of the book of Ephesians and really many times can't really express some even the greatest doctrines of the faith that we believe in. I mean, if you think about it, when's the last time that you heard a sermon preached on a subject like justification by faith alone or have somebody fully explain that? Or when's the last time that you watched a television preacher preach about the imputation of the righteousness of Christ to the believer? You ever hear anything like that on television anymore? When did you ever hear anything about the righteousness of God? Or when do you hear about the attributes of God? Where would you even hear a sermon anymore, maybe about something as simple as just the four essential requirements for a scriptural baptism? When's the last time you ever heard a sermon on things like that? Well, our churches today just really aren't preaching doctrine anymore. People aren't concerned about doctrine. What our churches are mainly interested in is just getting people in any way that we can get them in. Let's get them in. We're worried about the quantity of people rather than we are about the quality of the converts that are won. And unfortunately, the work of the ministry of the church won't be done by superficial disciples. People have to be grounded in the Word of God. And so that's why churches are weak today. In in efforts to perpetuate ministry, we've also perpetuated ignorance of the Word of God. Now, this is actually some of the things that Paul is addressing in the book of Ephesians. The goal of ministry is to take weak Christians and make strong Christians. Now, so far on this subject, I've already talked about preparations for ministry. And uh, in that sermon, we discussed the distribution of the gifts that God gives and the authority for those gifts, which, of course, rest in Christ alone. Next, we talked about specializations of ministry, and that was about the specific calling for certain people to do work in the church. But tonight, I want to talk to you about mechanizations of ministry. And that, that's what has God actually designed the ministry to do. Well, I'd like you to stand with me now, if you would, please, as we read God's Word. We're looking at Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to read verses 11 through 16. That'll be mostly uh, the subject tonight will be from verse number 12. But we're going to use these verses for the next couple of weeks as we talk about this. Ephesians 4, verse 11. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, 
till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you uh, for your word. We thank you for this great book of Ephesians. Lord, help us as we study this and as we expound your word. Give us the words to say, and may we be drawn closer to you because of what we hear tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. In verse number 11, Paul speaks about four special ministerial callings. And we discussed those four different offices in the church last week. One of the things that we discovered about them is that most likely there are, well, we do know for sure that there are two of these offices, and most likely three of these offices that we really don't have in the church today. We, of course, know that we don't have any apostles in the church because there isn't anyone today who can meet the special qualifications that the Scriptures have put on the office of apostleship. No one is a successor to those things. No one today is able to write Scripture as the apostles did. Uh, No one today has seen the resurrected Christ. No one today has the ability to lay hands on someone and impart spiritual gifts. And so very simply, we can say that the office of apostleship can't exist today because no one can meet those spiritual qualifications. Then also, the office of the prophet is not in existence today. Now, when Paul speaks about prophets here, he's speaking about people who were given direct inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit would impart to them special revelations that they could give to the people. But we no longer have prophets today because today we have the completed Word of God. We have the complete revelation that God wants us to have. And so we say that the Holy Scriptures are plenarily inspired. And what that means is that they are the full and complete revelation of all God's truth that God wants us to have. And there's just simply no more truth to be discovered, at least not what God wants us to find out by any special revelation. Then we also discussed evangelist. And we do have people today who call themselves evangelists, but actually uh, they don't perform the same function that we find in the New Testament. As we talked about last week, the modern-day evangelist travels around from church to church He does revival meetings. He gives inspirational speeches. He's an itinerant preacher. And, of course, there's nothing at all wrong with that. I mean, that's a good thing to do. But that's not exactly what the New Testament talks about when it speaks about evangelists. We have examples in the New Testament, actually really only two possible examples. One for sure is Philip, because he's called an evangelist. But what Philip did was to work very closely with the apostles, and he helped to build up the converts that that were one. And then Paul spoke specifically to Timothy and told him to do the work of an evangelist. But when Paul said that, what he intended for Timothy to do was to work in one location and to build upon the foundation that the apostles had already laid through the preaching of the word. So we really don't have evangelists, or we don't call people who do that evangelists today. Our evangelists really aren't what the New Testament describes as an evangelist. But we do have one calling in the church 
that's still here, that's still in, an ex- in existence today. And in verse number 11, that is the office of the pastor. And Paul calls it pastor and teacher. I think he means the same thing when he says the pastor and teachers. Now, all four of these offices in the beginning were given the duties of doing what Paul mentions in verses 12 through 16. But now, the only one left among all those offices that performs that function in the church is the office of the pastor. Now, for the next few minutes, I want to deal with that particular ministry. And my intention this evening is not to go into the full qualifications about the pastor, but I want to talk about just the functions of the office, his particular ministry, about the preaching of the ministry, and the value of this office. So first of all tonight, I want us to consider the work of ministry. And we notice in verse number 12 it says, For the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. And before we consider the work of ministry, we need to talk about uh, some variations of meaning that are given to this verse. There are two very different opinions about uh, what this verse means, and these opinions hinge upon the placement of a comma in this verse. Now, in the authorized version, that's the King James Version, the King James Version uses two commas. One comes after, you'll look in your Bible there, you have a King James Version. One of those commas comes after saints, and the other one comes after ministry. And so, with that construction, it looks like this verse is giving us three separate functions for the ministry. For the person that's mentioned here in verse number 11, of course, then we're talking about the pastor-teacher role. So ministers do the work of perfecting the saints, they do the work of ministry, and they edify or they build up the body of Christ. And the construction of this verse that we have in the King James Version is actually the one that's preferred by most of the older writers. And what they say is that the, the office of the pastor is specifically gifted with these three particular functions that they're to carry out in the Lord's church. But there's a difference of opinion about this. There's some today who don't think that that's what this verse is saying. And so about the, uh, towards the end of the 19th century, there was a man who came along by the name of Armitage Robinson, and he said that the comma after saints in that verse ought to be removed. And so the verse would read like this, for the perfecting of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Now, if you catch that or look at it, that gives the verse an entirely different meaning. It's a different meaning altogether. And with that construction, it means that it's the job of ministers to train believers to do ministry. Now, newer translations of the Bible uh, take, that, take that comma out and uh, they let the verse read in a different way. For instance, the NIV renders the verse, uh, these two verses this way. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. Then the New King James Version reads like this. And he gave himself or he himself gave, rather, some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of saints for the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. And so you can see that when you take the comma out, that it gives a different construction than the King James Version gives. Well, I think what's important here is is not whether the new readings, the new versions have a valid point, because certainly I think they do. It it is one of the jobs of the pastor to equip or to help build up saints so they can help do ministry in the church. 
But the question to me is not whether that is a valid point and whether you could use the verse to mean that. The, the, the big question to me is what is the writer's original intent? What is he actually trying to say? So what is the actual truth that he's trying to bring out? And it seems to me that what Paul is doing is delineating the office of the pastor-teacher, and he's saying that, or particularly pointing out, that the, the minister, the pastor of the church, has this special function. And whenever the, you see the word minister in the Bible, it's almost always used in that way, that it speaks specifically about the office itself. Now, the objection to that. The objection to, to saying that the two commas ought to be there, or we ought not to take that comma out, is that it makes too big of a distinction between the pastor and the rest of the people. In other words, it looks like it's making the pastor's job to do all the ministry, and all the people are to do is sit by and watch what the pastor does. And so he's the professional, and so he's supposed to do all of the ministry. And, of course, you have some people who interpret it that way. For instance, Catholicism is built upon that. You have a separation between the church and the laity, or, the, or the, the clergy and the laity, so that the clergy does all the works of ministry. And, of course, what that led to was a self-perpetuating perpetuating clerical office. The Catholics finally came to the opinion that bishops are to consecrate bishops, and nobody else has anything to say, so they perpetuated themselves that way. But I don't really think that it's a necessary inference of this verse that if you take a wrong interpretation or, or, or look at it that way, that you can't interpret the, the verse exactly as we have it in the King James Version. I mean, just because somebody uh, abuses a particular meaning of Scripture doesn't mean that the original intent isn't there, as Paul put it. Now, you might think, what in the world are you telling us all this for? And what is all that about? And you might reason in your own mind, are, am I just unnecessarily trying to complicate the message tonight? Well, really, I'm not, because I'm getting to a point. And my point is that even punctuation marks in your Bible are very important. Because you can take a punctuation mark out, and it can be the complete, total difference between understanding a verse in the right way or in the wrong way. And that's why you have to be very careful about using modern Bible versions. You see, you could pick up the NIV or the New King James Version, and you could read right over this verse, never really understanding what the, Paul's original intent was. That's why you have to be very careful about what you use and what you call Scripture. Now, Jesus made the point for us very clear in the book of Matthew. He said, For verily I say unto you, Till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all fulfilled. The jot and the tittle are the smallest marks of punctuation in the Hebrew language. And Jesus said every one of them is important. And in your Bible, sometimes just a punctuation mark can be very important as to whether you understand the Scriptures rightly or wrongly. Now, having said all of that, then what is the work of the ministry? Well, I think the King James Version is right. That is that it's giving us three separate functions here in this verse for the work of ministry. So let's talk about that. What is a pastor to do? Number one, or letter A on your listening sheet, to equip the saints. Now, Paul calls it here perfecting the saints. And I want to remind you of this once again, that when he uses the word saints, that he's not talking about some dead guy a long time ago that the Roman Catholic Church decided to canonize, and so they're a saint. When Paul uses the word saint, he means anybody 
who has put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and is a born-again Christian. You see, when you, when you trust Christ, right then you are canonized by God, and nobody else has anything to say anything about it. So we're saints if we are believers. And this is the work of the pastor then. He's to teach you how to live a Christian life. He's to show you how to work out your salvation. And he's to show you how that your life is to be effective for the cause of Christ. Now, perfecting the saints would necessarily involve preaching against sin. And the reason why we don't have too many people on the way to perfection is because there isn't a whole lot of preaching against sin anymore. Churches don't preach against sin. And when we don't preach against sin, we're not going to be equipped for the ministry. Now, if you're a saved child of God, there's one thing that you are very sensible of. You know that you're still a sinner. You know it's a struggle to live a Christian life. And every day you go through life, there are all kinds of problems, all kinds of temptations that you enter into. Sometimes uh, the devil gets the best of you and you do sin. So you're very sensible to the fact that you sin. But you also know this, that there was a time in your life that you couldn't serve God. I mean, you were separated from God because just the, the fall of man. That separated from you, you from God, so you couldn't do anything that was pleasing to God. But now God's given you new capabilities. You become a Christian, and now you can do righteous works. You can do things that, that God uh, is pleased with. You, you do things that are a blessing to other people. But you're always sensible to this, that there's that sin in your life. And if you're not sensible to that, if you're not thinking about that, then a Christian can very easily fall back into those same kinds of sins. Folks, that's why it's so important to go to church. It's why it's important for you to listen to the preaching of the Word of God. Because when you apply God's Word to your life, that's when you're equipped to do ministry. And a pastor's job is to bring you to that particular point. Now, I want to emphasize once again that preaching against sin and identifying sin in our lives is paramount to this operation. And if you go to a church where sin is not preached and the pastor is afraid that he's going to offend somebody if you mention sin, then you'll never be equipped to be a part of Christ's ministry. I mean, if you think about it, what else could Paul have been talking about when he speaks about perfecting saints? I mean, if he's not talking about getting rid of sin, what could he possibly be talking about? I mean, how could, you, how could you be full of the Holy Spirit and how can you do what God wants you to do? How could you be perfect and sinful at the same time? You can't. So Paul's talking here about eradicating sin in our lives, becoming holy as Christ is holy. Now, the summation of that thought is in verse number 13. He says, "...till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ." So he says the perfect man, and he speaks of the stature of Christ. And what is that? Well, that's speaking about Christ's moral character. And what kind of a moral person was Christ? Well, the Bible says he did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. And so to equip the saints for ministry means that we start working on this sinful nature to eradicate all sin that's in our life. Now, the next thing that the work of the ministry is to do is to, or the pastor, is to encourage the saints. Now, to edify or to build up people means to encourage them. And Christ's ministry was one of encouragement. You may remember this scripture in John chapter 16, verse 33. Jesus said, These things have I spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. A little bit later, we're going to come to that verse in our study of John. 
And Jesus, when he said this, was talking to a very discouraged group of disciples. Remember, Jesus had already told them that Judas was going to betray him. He said, Peter is going to deny me. Then on the, uh, he added to that, I'm going to be leaving you. And on top of it all, he said, in the world, you'll have tribulation. Now, that's a pretty discouraged bunch of people that he's talking to after giving all that information. But Jesus followed it up with these words, be of good cheer. And that's what the pastor has to do a lot of times. When you get discouraged in your Christian life, sometimes he just has to be there standing by to say, be of good cheer. So while I may preach about sin, and though I may step on your toes from time to time, I'll still also be preaching, but thanks be to God who giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So edifying and encouraging, that's what a pastor is supposed to do. And Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, reminding us, he says, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. Folks, there, there's nothing more encouraging that, than to know that in your trials and tribulations, that in your shortcomings and your failures of faith, God still works in you. God's still there. He's still perfecting you. Now, thirdly, the work of ministry is to enlighten the saints. It's the work of the pastor to teach you what God's Word says. And your enlightenment will only come from one place, and that's from the Scriptures. Now, what I've tried to do and, and tried to make it a part of my ministry as the pastor is to tackle some difficult doctrines. I've tried to make it a practice to, to teach you the Scriptures and, and in some ways to bring out the nuances of Scripture and help make things a little bit clearer than they otherwise would be. And if you wonder, why do I spend 10 minutes talking about a comma in one verse? Well, this is why. So you can understand it better. So you're going to understand it exactly as you should understand it. And I said all those things are, are important. And you might wonder why this is sermon number 43 in less than four chapters of Ephesians. Why is that? There's a lot in the Bible to learn. There's a whole lot of stuff here. Now, spiritual enlightenment is what keeps a Christian sane in an insane world. You need the Bible. You need to learn the Word of God. Now, learning the Word of God properly changes your whole attitude about things. I think preaching about the doctrines of grace has changed a whole lot of attitudes around here. Now, for sure, it made a lot of people mad. Some people do get mad about this. But for those who understand this and begin to see it, this brings a monumental change in your life. I mean, a totally different way of looking at things. I mean, folks, if you can't just be oh so thankful of God's plans and his purposes and knowing that God's in control of everything that goes on, if you can't know that, you just haven't got it yet. I mean, if you can't enjoy it, you haven't got it. Now, one of the things that the preaching of doctrines of grace will do for us, it relieves us from the pressures of performance. Paul said in Philippians 2, verse 13, For it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Now, our fundamental brothers are constantly preaching performance, performance, performance. And they're putting pressure all the time, all the time to perform. You know what God says? Forget the pressure. He says, whatever you do, I'll supply the grace to do it. Now, folks, there is a world of difference in working for God instead of working for the preacher. And I hope that you, surely hope that you can tell the difference between a pastor who says God will reveal his will for your life as opposed to I will reveal God's will for your life. There's a big difference there. 
Now, here's where we find a real distinction made between clergy and laity in our Baptist churches. Because we have some clergy in our Baptist churches. We have some Baptist popes, and the laity are the blind followers, and the pope lays down all of his rules and regulations, and you follow those, you do exactly what he says, and, 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 and he's going to tell you what God's will is. Well, folks, the, the pastor's job is to enlighten you so that you can discern what God's will is for you. And if a pastor stops short of doing that, he's not doing the work of ministry. Now, I'll say some more about that last week, or next week, or last week, next week. I'll expand on that theme a little bit. It'll be hard to say about something about it last week, but I'm going to expand on it a little bit next week as we talk about this again. But secondly, let's talk about the Word in the ministry. You know, I only have one tool to work with. I have only one tool because there's only one tool that I need. Here is the only tool that I need to work with in this church. All that you ever need to know about God and your relationship with God is found right here in this book. This is the inspired, infallible, inerrant Word of God, and that's all I need. Folks, I don't need 40 days of purpose. I don't even need 60 days of purpose. I don't need a workbook and a spiritual gift test to tell me what God wants me to do. It's all right here. This is the test that God gives us. Now, let me give you three points about the Word as it relates to the pastor's ministry. First of all, it must be perceived authoritatively. Now, this is the book that we're talking about, the Bible. This is the complete book. Now, I said earlier, the Bible is plenarily inspired. And you might want to make a note of that. You can write that down there, that what that means, it's full, the full and complete revelation of God to man. So the Bible's not a book of suggestions. It's not a book of some pretty good principles and ideas. It's not a book of comparison to where I can look at it and and take my ideas and kind of mix it with what it says. And so we can determine uh, which opinions are better and which are not. Because the Bible is a book of opinion, but it's the only opinion that counts. It's the only one that we can go by. It's, uh, it, it, it's the one that, we, we, that is the test for all of us because it's not really just simply opinion. It's authoritative fact. So we reject anything else that claims to be inspired. A few weeks ago, I, I had a lady who was a Jehovah Witness who wrote to me. I think maybe I might have told you about this before, but she sent me a copy of the Watchtower. And she said, now, if any of your members, members of your church have questions about this, you just refer them to me, and I'll be happy to answer questions. And, you know, I looked at that letter almost in disbelief. I mean, did, did, did she seriously believe that I was going to refer members of our church to the musing of some half-crazed Jehovah Witness? I mean, did she really think that I was going to do that? You know, the Watchtower claims to be inspired, and it is. It's inspired right out of hell. I agree with that. It's inspired, all right. Folks, God's Word is the authority. The traditions of Roman Catholicism are not authoritative. The Book of Mormon isn't. The Koran isn't. The Veda isn't. All that's a bunch of lies. The Bible alone is our authority. And folks, there's enough in the Bible to occupy us until Jesus comes again and beyond. The Word of God says this Word is forever settled in heaven. It's our only authority. Now, everybody here goes to this church, but if you go to some other church and they don't preach God's Word, they're not doing the work of ministry. You know, I think one of the things I really think that, that we ought to do as churches, we, we need to go back to the days of the Puritans. We need to go back to the days of people like Spurgeon who stood up and preached the Word of God without all the fluff that goes with it. 
and preached it without ambiguity and without apology, just straight through expounding the Word of God. Next, it must be preached appropriately. A pastor's job is to preach the Word appropriately. See, a pastor has to be sensitive to the needs of his congregation. And I try to do that. I mean, I try to make a difference in the way that I preach according to who I'm preaching to. And I, and I don't mean by that that I look over the crowd and see who's going to get mad about what I preach and decide to preach somebody else, something else. I don't mean that at all. What I mean is I understand that there are some people in the church at particular times that just don't understand very well. I mean, they can't take strong doctrine and things like that. And so at certain times, I'm not going to preach that. There are people who need the milk of the word, and there are some of you who need more than that. I think it's really sad that many of our members don't come to church on Sunday night, and many don't come on Wednesday nights. And the reason I think it's sad is because the Sunday morning messages are the easy ones. I mean, on Sunday mornings, that we have a lot of visitors, so it's not likely that I'm going to get down into some real deep doctrine in a Sunday morning sermon. But we try to do that sometimes on Sunday nights and on Wednesday nights. And so you take a Christian who only goes to church on Sunday morning, you know what will happen to him? He'll be stunted in his Christian growth. Now, this is a plain fact. Sunday morning Christians don't get very far spiritually. There are people who struggle with sin more. They struggle with consistency in their Christian life more. They struggle with the whole issue we've been talking about here, perfecting the saints. And I'm not saying when I say that that any of us here are perfect. And I'm not saying that we are superior Christians because we go to church on Wednesday night. What I'm saying is that when you subject yourself, when you put yourself under the preaching of the Word of God, it will produce the desired effect. It always does. So the pastor has to uh, approach the Word in such a way that he can feed all comers. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians, I have fed you with milk and not with meat, for hitherto ye were not able to bear it, neither yet now are ye able. So it's plainly true that there are some people who are not spiritual adults. They can't take strong doctrine, and so they need some milk. But if you're listening to the Word of God, and you're coming as you should, and you apply the Word of God as you ought to, then that milk starts to turn into cereal. And the cereal starts to turn into peas and strained carrots. Not won't be long, hopefully, that it's mashed potatoes off the table. And finally, you get up to fried chicken and T-bone steak. And when you get to that point, that's when you really enjoy eating, when you can take the T-bone steak in the Word of God. So the pastor has to see who needs what and provide that for them. Then next, it must be presented, the Word must be presented attractively. Now that brings us back to encouragement, because, you know, I, I believe in preaching on hell, but I'm not going to preach on hell without telling you there's a heaven. And uh, I'm not going to beat you on the head, over the head, with your duty all the time without telling you also that there's a reward for what you do for Christ. And I'm not going to lay heavy burdens upon you without telling you there's somebody who can carry your load. You know, I think it's sad that preachers can get up to preach an entire sermon and they've got a scowl on their faces as if being a Christian is one of the most miserable things that could ever happen to anybody. I think it's sad that there are preachers who think that you're not doing what's right because you're not standing outside of a bar hitting somebody over the head with the King James Bible. And you're not out there yelling hell, fire, and damnation to everybody that goes by. And if you don't do that, you're not in God's will. 
Folks, you don't win people by looking like a religious nutcase. Preach the word, but preach it attractively. And I don't mean water it down. I mean preach God's word with love and compassion. You don't win a drunk to the Lord by condemning him to hell while he's holding a bottle. You win a drunk to the Lord by showing him the compassion of Christ who can deliver him from that bottle. Now, the danger of that in your tactics of trying to preach the word attractively is you can go too far the other way. And so you might end up like Joel Osteen, smiling like a Cheshire cat and telling everybody, you know, that uh, God wants you to be lucky today, that God only has one thing in mind for your life, and that's for you to be rich, for you to be prosperous, for you to be happy, and to have enough money to buy all my books. That's what God wants you to be. You know, the problem with that, folks, is it's not the Word of God. That's not what the Bible teaches. I mean, you, you show me in the Bible where Paul was wealthy and prosperous. Show me where the Apostle John or Peter or James, any of them were wealthy and prosperous. And I can show you in the Bible where Paul went to prison. And I can show you where Peter was crucified. I can show you where James was beheaded. And I can show you where the Apostle John was exiled to a rocky island in poverty. Presenting the word attractively means that you preach the word truthfully. Tell the whole truth about the word of God. Now, when we talk about preaching attractively, also I don't mean that church is to be pure entertainment. And that's the bane of the megachurches because that's what they try. The Word of God is supposed to be the central thing, but the Word of God is obscured by rock bands and, and light shows and, and smoke machines and all those kinds of things. Folks, we're not here to entertain people. That's not our purpose. The attractiveness of God's Word is the message itself. Dead sinners are brought to life. Those that are headed for hell are turned around and headed for heaven. And that's the attractiveness of the Word of God. And if it takes more than that to float your boat, you're sailing the wrong sea. Number three, lastly, I want to talk about the worth of ministry. Let me give you two quick points here and we'll be finished. And then we'll expand a little bit on this theme in the next lesson because that's what it's going to be about. What is the value of ministry? What's God given the pastor the ministry for? First, for the decrease of deception. Now, today's world, we have a lot of religious charlatans. And in Paul's day, that was true as well. And so he says in this 14th verse, that we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro, and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men, and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. So a pastor's job is to warn you about deceit and about the craftiness of men. Now, the more that the pastor preaches the Word of God and the more that you're listening to the Word of God, the more that you're going to be able to discern good doctrine from bad doctrine. When I first came to California, I visited, I don't know how many churches, but I visited all over the place, many, many different churches. But one of the things that I was trained to do was to tell the good from the bad. I could tell when a preacher was preaching the truth and when he wasn't preaching the truth. And unfortunately, there are a lot of people who haven't sat under a pastor where they learn those kinds of things. And so they can't tell if the doctrine is good or bad. And so consequently, Paul talks about it right here. He says, we're just like children. And children soak up anything. They believe anything that somebody says. Well, Paul says, if you get under here underneath the preaching of the word of God, you'll be able to recognize these things. Now, a pastor who's preaching correctly wants you to recognize error when you hear it. And not only error of somebody else, the pastor wants you to recognize his error when you hear it. And that might happen sometimes. 
And if a pastor hasn't got you to the place where you can recognize when that just doesn't sound right, there's something wrong with that, then he's not an Ephesians 4.12 pastor. So, Paul says, learn the Word of God. The pastor's supposed to teach you how to decrease your chances of being deceived. And then finally, your pastor has been given his ministry for the increase of intimacy, for the decrease of deception, and for the increase of intimacy. Now, verse 16 says, "...from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working and the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body under the edifying of itself in love." And so when the pastor has effectively acquainted you with God's Word you will be in closer fellowship with Jesus. You'll be in closer fellowship with God. And you can't be in closer fellowship with the Lord without being in closer fellowship with your brothers and sisters in Christ. And so the, the effect of the Word of God and proper preaching from the Word of God is to draw a church closer together, to become more closely knit. And so when the ministry of the pastor comes together in this way by applying all of these things that Paul says in verse 12, perfecting the saints, the work of the ministry, edifying the body, then the body will increase in love and fellowship. Verse 15, he says, But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. Now let's finish with this last statement on your listening sheet. The knowledge of Scripture is the key to ministry. And if you've been listening very carefully to me tonight, you should recognize that in every point that I've made, the Word of God is the underlying theme. The underlying premise here is the Word of God itself. The key to ministry is always the Word. And when churches neglect the Word of God, that's what leads to the downfall. Pastors without the knowledge of God are not a blessing without the knowledge of the Word of God, are not a blessing to their church. They're a curse to their church. Now, folks, be thankful whenever your pastor stands up and pulls out the Bible and begins to expound the whole counsel of the Word of God because it's good for you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to speak your Word tonight. Lord, help us to learn things that we need to know. Help us, Lord, to apply your Word, to be students of your Word, be people of your Word. Because this is where all ministry comes from. Doing ministry right, doing the ministry that you want us to in the right ways comes from knowing your word. So may we be people of your word. Bless in this invitation tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's please stand.